Well, if you would take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 13, we continue our study through the book of Acts that we're calling Sent. No, that's not what that's called. Uh, we're actually calling Jesus Acts. Last week, the sermon was called uh, The Sent. Sorry. Um, I was going to make mention of that. If you weren't here last week, um, I don't normally say this. Um, Go back and listen to last week's sermon just to feel the heart of this place. I, I listened to it this week, and I don't normally listen to myself preach because I don't like to hear the sound of my, my voice, um, and my kids may agree with that, actually. But uh, I went back and listened to it, and um, I thought, that's a crazy guy preaching. like that. I don't know if I would go to church there. Uh, and so thank you for coming back this week, first of all. Uh, but also, there were some things that were maybe not scripted or, or in, in the sermon preparation that I said. And uh, I'm thankful the Spirit led in that way because we do want to be a church that doesn't hoard to ourselves, doesn't build some massive legacy here that we have to control and we have to keep up with, but sends as much out as we can as much money, as many people as we can to the ends of the earth. That's who, that's who we're going to be. Uh, and so go back and, and listen to that if you want to know what, what we're going to be about here. Uh, and before we get into the sermon, first of all, we, we need everyone's help as we move toward Easter Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and we want you to invite your friends. We want you to invite your relatives, family. Maybe there's somebody you know who needs the gospel. And I know... In, in some churches, it's this sort of idea where we, well, we celebrate the resurrection every week. We, why is Easter any different? And, and I get that. I do, I do understand that because we celebrate the risen Christ week after week after week here. Uh, and not a lot's going to be different next week as far as the worship service goes. Uh, there will be some things that, that will be uh, special, maybe. Uh, but what happens at Easter in our culture is very unique. And it's people who will not normally go to church are looking for a church to go to. Uh, statistics are very, it's, it's just a fact now that 85% of the people you're around that don't attend church when it comes to Easter are, are leaning in and waiting for you to say, will you come to church with me on Easter? Uh, and a lot of those folks don't want to go to church with grandma. They, they, they want to go to church with you, and they're waiting for you to ask them to go, maybe so they don't have to go with Grandma. But they can tell Grandma, I went to church on Easter. That's kind of the way folks work these days. But folks are waiting for us to invite them, so we're not going to begrudge that. We're going to throw our doors open, and we're going to invite as many people here next week as we can. Uh, porta potties are ordered. If you are a regular, because we need more bathrooms, and they'll be here um, I know some of you don't use them, but at least it's a sign of goodwill that we're trying. Um, but that's ordered. Uh, if you are a regular attender here and you don't have to do this, we are asking that you park across the street. There will be shuttles to get you over here. Uh, we'll have family pictures. It's, it's going to be a wonderful Sunday. We, we're going to have gifts for guests next week. Uh, but we need you to invite them. And there are yard signs as you leave. And I know some of you are like, I ain't putting a yard sign in my grass, the homeowners association, blah, blah. We have your address. And if you don't get a sign today, you will have one by midweek st stuck in your yard. So get a sign as you, as you leave today. 
Uh, we also have what these are called door, door hangers. Uh, and we want to cover as many uh, areas of Richmond as possible. And so as you leave today, grab a map and, and grab a stack of door hangers. And you and your family, I promise it takes 25 minutes after you leave the Cracker Barrel. Go, go to a neighborhood and hang doorknobbers today. And then BFGs are going to help with that, what's left. So, so take part in that. It's really, really easy. And then in also using social media and those things, also, in your seat, you have three invite cards, three. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to think of one person who, not, not just to get someone else here. I, I want to be clear about that. Someone that you know right now who needs Jesus. Someone, not that you, you're thinking, oh, they, they need a church. No, someone you know who needs to believe the gospel and be saved. And I want you to take one of those cards right now, and we're going to pray for that person. You're going to pray for that person. And I'm going to pray that we invite those people next Sunday. And then you have two other cards uh, to use this week also. Take those. Uh, we have your seat marked. If there's, they're left in the seat, we'll know that you're, you didn't do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, in, in all seriousness, uh, let's pray for the folks that we know who need Jesus, who we're going to commit to invite to Easter Sunday right now. I'm going to give you a few moments to pray, and then I will. Oh God, it, it should be overwhelming to us right now that all across this room, in our minds, we were thinking of different people who need Jesus. And it should overwhelm us, as Jesus says, the, the harvest, it's full, it's plentiful, it's, it's growing, it's growing overboard. And yet you've called us into that harvest this week. Just invite folks to come to church with us. And yet, God, we pray that we would have opportunity to, to share Christ with them. To plead with them to believe in Jesus and be saved. And God, we, <clears throat> we don't want next Sunday to be about a brand. We want it to be about a Savior. And so, God, we pray this week that we would put feet to that conviction and we would plead and we would proclaim the gospel. And God, we do pray that we would look around this place next Sunday and see a room teeming with people who we've prayed for, who we've invited. And God, we pray that they would come and that they would, just through our message, the foolishness of the gospel preached, a, a crucified Christ, they would be saved. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we're looking at Acts chapter 13 today, and we're going we're gonna to look at verses 16 through 29. Um, so if, you, if you're there, if you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to read just verse 29. 
And we stand before Christ in His Word and we make this declaration that He is, he is the Savior King. He is the Savior King that we need in these moments more than anything else. That, that, that He is the one who has called us to Himself. He has, um, he has come and lived and died in our place. He gives us the opportunity to follow Him by faith. Hear the word of Christ. Verse 29, And they carried out all that was written of Him, and they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. Oh God, as we, we hear those words from Your Word, they are words of hopelessness in many ways. They are, they are words that are dark and they, are, they would cause us to despair if we didn't know the end of the story, if we didn't know Easter was coming. God, they are words that seem to call attention to the worst chapter in the story. And the truth is that God, you not only use your worst chapter in the story, you use our worst chapters to tell a glorious story of redemption and resurrection. God, help us to see that today as we look to our Savior King, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. May be seated. They don't like your preaching. Now, this was the same mission trip that I talked about last week in Brasilia, Brazil, where I was offending everyone throughout the week with my hand gestures. I didn't know I was unintentionally flipping everyone in the congregation off in Brazil, what that looks like with the OK sign. I was doing that the whole week there, and I had offended this whole congregation. And if that wasn't enough, I got in the car the night before the last night of this revival where I was speaking in the city. And my translator just thought he would turn to me on the last night before the, the last sermon, the night before the last sermon, and he would just say, hey man, they don't like your preaching. Now, this was a guy from the United States of America. He was an older guy. Uh, he was actually at one time in his life uh, John MacArthur's dad, he was his associate pastor, and God had called him to Brazil, and he had spent his whole life there uh, working, doing mission work, and he was my translator for the week. And he had told me all week how much he loved the preaching, how refreshing the preaching was to him. But I had one more sermon, and he just turned to me very bluntly in the car as I was leaving. He said, they hate what you're saying. They hate your preaching. And then he began to explain to me this, uh, this um, doctrine, health, wealth doctrine, it's called the G12 movement that had moved through Brazil and it was latched to what's called the health, wealth, prosperity gospel where if you have enough faith, God will heal you of your sicknesses. Where if you give money by faith, God will bless you with riches. And the congregation that week realized I wasn't a part of the G12 movement. Actually, I was preaching something way different than what they thought an American, someone from the United States, was going to preach to them. 
I was the total opposite of what they thought was coming. I was American, and they thought I was going to be very healthy, which I was. I was 22 at the time. But I was broke as a joke. I was this poor college student, which is a part of some of my uh, illustrations, I think. And they, they looked and thought, this is not what we thought a preacher from the United States of America was going to be here preaching. You're talking about suffering. You're talking about taking up your cross and following Jesus and, and even giving money away for the mission. And, and I was even giving invitations at the end of every night where I was calling people forward to believe the gospel. And the first night, there were like 10 people who came down front. And I was like, yes, this is, this is great. We even have to report back numbers of people responding, and I'm going to have the most numbers of people responding. Except that these folks, now I was beginning to connect the dots. They were coming forward to be healed. And all week long, I never even knew that. I was they would say, well, can you pray for me? I was like, sure, I would pray for them. My foot hurts, I can't see. And so I would pray for those things. And they would turn around and walk back to their seat disappointed. Like, oh, that didn't work. What's it? And, and, and so here I am hearing this from my translator. They hate your preaching. You, you've offended them with your hand gestures all week. And, and now you can't heal them. And so I thought, do we even come back tomorrow night? What do we do? And I asked him, what do we do? And he said, nothing. He said, just keep preaching. And so the next night, I really poured it on. But I can't even explain to you the feeling of that last night of walking in that church and knowing, knowing everyone there was going to hate everything I was about to say. Knowing I was sort of a, a disappointment in my message to these folks and having to to stand and preach before them knowing what I was about to say wasn't going to be received. In the book of Acts, that is the normal feeling when preaching the gospel. It's not as though these men are coming to people who they know are going to receive their message. They know from the very beginning Everything they are about to say is going to fly in the face of the people they're preaching to. They're going to hate it. They're going to despise it. And yet we see in the book of Acts, it is the power of the Spirit that undergirds that preaching. To be able to step in those moments and declare Christ as Lord and as Savior to folks who do not want to receive it. And that's exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas doing as they move out on their first missionary journey. In Acts chapter 13, we see Paul's first missionary journey. They have been sent out by the church in Antioch as missionaries to preach the gospel. And they move first across this island of Cyprus. It, it's where Barnabas is from. And they move from one end to the other of this island preaching the gospel. And one of the things they do as they preach the gospel is they continue to go to the Jew first. They continue to show up at synagogues and preaching to the Jews who they know don't want to hear what they have to say. Think about how the story in Acts has gone. In Jerusalem, there's been stonings. In Jerusalem, there have been Christians who are being, being killed. They've been chased out of that city. And you would think Paul, who now understands he is a missionary to the Gentiles, we would say, Paul, do you really want to go to the synagogues? 
Do you really think that's going to be effective? Do you really think you're going to be received there? And, and as we move through Acts chapter 13, they, they move across Cyprus and they move back north and they end up in another Antioch. It's not the same Antioch they started in. And, and here in this city, Antioch, there is this Jewish community center called a synagogue. And this is where Jewish refugees would have gone to. And Paul says, that's where we're going to go and hang out. We're going to go there, Barnabas, and we're going we're to have fellowship with these Jews, and we're going to proclaim the gospel to them. And so Paul and Barnabas show up for church on a Saturday at the synagogue. And, and they begin to read the scripture as normal. And someone turns around and says, is that not Saul? Is that not the guy who knows the Old Testament backward and forward? Is that not the guy who can preach? He is a skilled speaker. And they turn to, to Saul, Paul, who is sitting in the congregation, who looks like a respected teacher. And they say, Brother Saul, do you have a word for us today? And Paul says, absolutely, I have a word for you. And probably sitting there, they had no idea what he was about to talk about. And if they had known he was about to talk about Jesus, they probably would not have turned to him and said, hey, you want to preach today, brother? They probably would not have done this. But this is exactly what they do. And then we get to verse 16. And Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he said, men of Israel... And you who fear God, this is a respected rabbi, a respected teacher, standing up in the center. Everyone's going to listen to him. And he is declaring to them, here, I am speaking the word of God to you. Listen. And then verse 17, he begins to communicate the need for salvation among the people of Israel. And he starts in verse 17, he says, the God of the people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. He says, I'm going to tell you your story. I'm going to go back and tell you the things you've heard before. Our people, Israel, was they were chosen. They were elected. God set his love upon them. He freely decided to love them. And what did he do? He made them great. The word means to be exalted while they were in Egypt. Now, that's supposed to shake you a little bit. They were made great and lifted high in Egypt as a slave nation. That doesn't make sense. These slaves began to grow in number and they were made large. And the slave nation isn't supposed to outgrow their oppressors, but that was what was happening in Egypt when Israel was there. And then from Egypt, notice with an uplifted arm, it's the same word. He, he exalted them and led them out of Egypt. God, God is making this nation great, but, but the imagery here, exalted hands, He is rescuing them. He is lifting them up out of slavery. And Paul begins to say, God saved us from Egypt. God is our Savior. And he continues in verse 18, and for about 40 years after being out of Egypt, he put up with them in the wilderness. Interesting how that's phrased there. The word means he endured them. Because as Israel is saved from Egypt, they go out to the wilderness. And what do they do? 
They begin to whine and complain. God gives them manna. God begins to take care of them. The presence of God is with them. And they begin to say things like, we liked Pharaoh's food better. We would rather Pharaoh be our father. We would rather go back to Egypt than be out here in this wilderness. And Moses is saying, he rescued you. He saved you. But Paul says he put up with them. He endured them as they endured the wilderness. And then verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land as an inheritance. And so he has saved them from Egypt. He saved them from the wilderness. And then like a good father, he gives them this inheritance of a land where they live with him. They live in his presence. God has rescued them to the land. He has saved them to the land. And on along the way, he has destroyed any of their enemies. Seven nations in the land of Canaan. This refers to the story of Joshua who goes in and wipes out alliance kings. And we see as the Ark of the Covenant, as the presence of the Lord is with them, the enemies of God begin to fall. And what Paul is saying is God has saved you from slavery. He saved you from the wilderness. And He has saved you into your land. God is your Savior. God is the one who saves. This is true in the history of Israel. And he stands before these Jews to point to, 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 point to God, Yahweh, as Lord and Savior. But the point is, along the way, exactly what's happening with Jesus, the Savior, Israel has always rejected God as Savior. That's what those stories are to shake in their mind. Along the way as God is saving them, rescuing them, it is to awaken this need, but also to help them to remember as He saved them, they were rejecting their Savior all along the way. Generations are destroyed. Leaders, don't Moses doesn't even get to go into the promised land because he is rejecting the authority of God to save. And it's the same thing going on here this morning. God has aligned some of your lives up to rescue you from yourself, to rescue you from your sin. Some of you were invited to church today and you've showed up here saying, I don't need this. This is heavy. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be heavy. I need just a little pep talk, some motivation. And you're here seated not feeling the weight and gravity of your need for God, that you are desperate for Him. So some of you are here today and God is blessing you. You're asking for things and He is answering your prayer. And you know why He is doing that? He is healing people in your life. He is aligning and orchestrating certain things in your life for you to stop and go, I couldn't do this on my own. Look at the way God is blessing me financially. Look at the way God is taking care of things. I couldn't live without Him. And yet some of you, as He is rescuing you, you are rejecting Him as Savior. Some of you are going through struggles. And you know what God is doing? He's taking things out of your life, people, things, for you to stop and go, I need God more than this. I need God more than them. And you are rejecting Him as Savior as He is saving you, as He is rescuing you. That is the story of Israel. They needed a Savior, but they also needed a king. Notice verse 20. 
All of this took place about 450 years. And then he gave them judges until Samuel. Now when we think about judges, you should read the book of Judges. It is a fantastic book. It's like these, when you think judges, don't think someone in a courtroom. Judges are like these ancient comic book superheroes. You have guys like Samson who can't cut his hair. You, you have people taking tent pegs and driving them through their enemies' heads. You, you're thinking, oh, this is something I don't, I don't want to read right now. You, you have the, this, this one judge who takes the jawbone of a donkey and begins to wipe out the Philistines. And all of that is done, here's the point, by the power of God. He is taking care of his, his people almost with these figures that are kind of like our superheroes, almost like Batman who, who is given charge over Gotham. He gives charge of these judges over his people. And, and the people begin to rebel against God. God punishes them with, his, with their enemies. And then these judges, anointed by God, rise up and destroy the enemy of God. But the point was never so that they would trust in the judges, Samson and the others. The, the, the point was not, never that they would trust in those people. It was God was preparing them for something better. And these rescuers, these deliverers, these judges, he was preparing them for a king. And that's how verse 20 ends. Until Samuel the prophet, they continue to sin, they're continued delivered, and then along comes Samuel. And what does Samuel do? He, be, he brings along the message of a king. And then verse 21, then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Now, the point here is they rejected God as deliverer, as king, as savior. And they reject him by asking for their own king. You see, God had told Israel, I'm going to give you a king. In Deuteronomy, there are laws for them to live under a king, but it was going to be his king. And yet, after the judges, before Saul, Israel begins to look at other nations and go, we want to be like them. Look, they have a king. We have these weird judges. We want a king like the other nations. And they reject God as king. God is saying, I'm supposed to be your king. And I will give you my king. No, we want our own king. And so they end up with Saul, the son of Kish. He's not from the tribe of Judah. But the point here is that there's leading to something better. That you can't take care of yourself. You can't deliver yourself. And you don't even understand what it means to have God as king. You reject him as king. That the sin of the book of Judges, the sin in calling for Saul, ultimately is a rejection of God as king, which is what some of you are doing this morning. Like Israel, you say, I want a king for myself. You're saying to God today, let me pick my king. Let me pick who runs my life. And so often the man you want to be king is the one you stare at in the mirror. The woman you want to be queen is the woman you stare at in the mirror. You want to pick who runs your life, just like Israel. And many of us are struggling here today. That's the heart of sin in your life, by the way, is this fight for royalty, this fight to rule your own life. 
And where it ends up is you push God out. You, you, you think, I can do it myself. Many of you are here today and you're, you're, you're trying so hard to carve out little worlds, little areas of your life where you're somebody, where people look in and go, wow, he's amazing. Wow, she's amazing. Whether it's on the PTA, whether it's playing Fortnite, wherever. Little communities, little communities where he is awesome. Look at all the awards and, and rewards he has. Look at how great he is, whether it's in the dugout or the break room. You want to be king. And, and what you do so often in those times is when God intrudes on that and you begin to feel like God is king, not me. You push him away and you look for someone else, something else to be king of your life. And you carve out little places of authority. Even like Israel, think about this. There's so many areas in our life where we want to be in control of who we listen to. You obey and you submit to authority that you want to submit to. If there's a, a boss or a teacher that you're trying to impress, you will do whatever they say. But, but if it's the speed limit, if it's mom and dad, or if it's someone you can't understand why you should submit to them, I just want to do what I want to do. And that's the heart of your sin is this fight for royalty. I want to be king, and it's exactly what Israel was doing. They needed a savior. They needed a king. And then what does God give them? Verse 22, he removed him. He removed Saul, and he raised up David. Now, as you read back through this, something you should notice is God is the subject of this whole section. God did this, God did this, God did this, God saved them, God gave them a king. And here God removed Saul and he raised up David to be their king in whom he testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Here we have David, the son of Jesse. He is a nobody shepherd boy who's out there with the sheep playing a harp, killing lions and bears. He's not anybody where you were looking around and you said, who's going to be the next king? He was even least among his brothers. But he was the son of Jesse in the tribe of Judah where God had promised to raise up his king. And only God could do this. And God says of David, not Saul, not anyone else in the line, this is my king. And the prophet declares, this is the one who's going to rule Israel. And notice how it explains, he is a man after my own heart. You read through the Psalms and you see the heart of David, who loves the law of the Lord, who, who longs for the law of the Lord like gold and silver, like honey. This is God's king. This is the one I'm anointing. But we know how David's story ends, right? David sins. And after David's sin, he's no longer called a man after God's own heart. After adultery with Bathsheba, after killing Uriah, he is no longer a man after God's own heart. And so we're left again. We need something more. We need something better. And then we get to verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior. And the people in the synagogue would have stopped and said, Oh, what is he about to say? A Savior. 
And many of them would have had just sort of generic, allegorical, super spiritual views of Messiah. Maybe God is doing something we can't see. But then he says, a Savior, Jesus, as promised. Jesus. And that should sound redundant to us. Savior, Jesus. It's the same word. It means rescuer, deliverer, Savior, Jesus. And what Paul is saying is your Savior King has come. And He has a name. And He's a person. And it's Jesus, the Galilean, the Nazarene who was killed in Jerusalem. He is like David from Bethlehem, lowly and unrecognizable. But He is the one God promised. David died. Even David's offspring, Solomon, all of his glory, he died. Your Savior King is Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean. And notice verse 24. Before his coming, he had a prophet. His name was John. And he proclaimed at the baptism to all the people of Israel. Now, John was a prophet. He falls into the line of the prophets. The prophets were meant to say, here comes God's king. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. The king is coming in. He was to clear out a path for Jesus to walk down. And that's what John does out in the wilderness. And he does by preaching a baptism of repentance. We read of John the Baptist and he's out in the wilderness covered in hair, eating bugs, down by the river, proclaiming that is the Lamb of God who has come to save the world. And in this repentance, he tells Israel, your king has come. There he is in flesh and blood. That is the Savior King with fingernails, with, 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 with eyelashes. There he is. That is the kingdom of God. That is the Messiah. That is the Savior King. And if you would bow to him in baptism of repentance, if you would turn to your sin and get on your knees before this Galilean, you would be rescued. And the anointing that fell on David will also fall on you. Verse 25, John's point as he was finishing his course, he says, what do you suppose that I am he? I, I'm not he. I'm not the king. I'm just a prophet. He must increase. I must decrease. And then he says, no, but after me, one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Now think about this. John says, I am this anointed, powerful prophet, but I'm only a slave to the king who has come. We must all bow before him and turn to him. He is greater. That was the point of John's message, is that there was one greater. And that's what Paul's getting at here. There has always been one greater coming, a greater deliverer, a greater savior, a greater king. And here he is in Jesus. There is a desire for the king, a king like the other nations, a man to rule over us. But God gives us the best king in the God man as king. 100% man to live and die for men. 100% God to do what men can't do. And there he is in flesh and blood, Jesus. If you would bow down before him, you would receive the anointing of the kingdom. And one of the things we see with Jesus is the power of the kingdom. He walks about and the power of the kingdom, he says, is at hand. And he speaks to demons and they're scared of him. He speaks to sin or he speaks to sickness and it leaves bodies uh, he speaks to even death itself and he gets up and walks out of a cave. 
He has the power of the kingdom to the point that the forces of darkness, the demons would walk up to Jesus, the demons. And they would come up to Jesus and say, we know you are the Holy One of Israel. Have you come to destroy us? So we even see in the life of Jesus, the demons recognize he is the Savior King. The demons realize he is the Christ. And the question for you today is, do you? Do you realize this is the Savior King? Do you feel your need to be saved? Do you understand your need to be ruled by a good King? Because many of us come in here and that's why we are so miserable. Because we're not, we're not stopping and saying, I'm not Savior. Some of you are here today and you're trying so hard to save yourself. Your, your motives, your intentions seem to be good and seem to be right. You are memorizing scripture. You are reading the Bible. You are showing up for church. You are taking your kids to Awana. You are at a Bible fellowship group. You raised your hands through the whole songs. And, and then you get to the end and you go, I'm so still doubt it's true. I still don't believe this is right. You know why? Because you're trying to be Savior. You can't be Savior. You can't. Your life is tainted and marked with sin. It's as if you have stuck your hands in an inkwell full of sin. And now everything in your life that you touch is marked with sin and you can't get rid of it. And that is what's going on in your gut. It's because as good as you are, you still see the fingerprints of sin all over your life. There is only one Savior. And His blood is pure. And He calls you today to trust in His cross, to trust in His life, to trust in His death, to stick your hands in the inkwell of His love, His blood, so that His blood would mark everything that you do forgiven, redeemed, and so that you would have hope. You're not Savior. You were never meant to be Savior. But you're also not King. This is what makes many of us here so angry and so frustrated. We're trying so hard to be king of our life and it's making us miserable. Do you understand when you make yourself the central figure of your life, it's always going to make you miserable? Like when you say, look at me, look what I can do. Look, 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 I've got it together. Everybody be impressed with me. Guess what you're doing? All you're doing is calling more people to look at you. And that doesn't make anyone happy at the end of the day. Because what do you do? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I taking care of enough people? Am I doing the right thing? Do they like me? Do they like me? And at the heart of that, you're trying to be king. And you're not meant to be king. There is freedom in going, I'm a mess. I'm weak. I don't have power to take care of it. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Let's look at Jesus together as king. But when you make yourself king, you're going to be miserable because you're weak. You're not sovereign. But you make yourself, you put yourself on center stage and it makes you miserable. You see, at the heart of who we are is this. We trust in king, the one we believe saves. Right now, you're trusting in making king of your life those things and those people you think are going to save you. Save you from feeling miserable? Save you from loneliness? Save you from not being good enough? Those things, those pills, 
whatever it is that's going to save me from not being adequate enough. And you are trusting in those things as king. And what you need is to bow before Jesus as Savior King. Paul stands up in the synagogue and says, God's always been Savior. God's always been King. You can't save yourself. Bow before Jesus of Nazareth as His anointed King. But that's not what happens. Notice, he tells the rest of the story. Verse 26, brother, son, of the family of Abraham and those who fear God. To us has been sent the message of salvation. He turns to this, these Jews in Antioch in this Jewish center and he says, we have this glorious heritage as children of Abraham, those who fear God and seek to obey the law, but a message of salvation, which is, is beautifully put here. A word of deliverance has come to us to rescue us from thinking we can save ourselves. But verse 27 for those who live in Jerusalem, their rulers, the religious elite there, also the political rulers, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets read every Sabbath. What's he getting at here? I know at this point in the sermon, Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I know at this point, some of you, when I said Jesus, you freaked out. You freaked out. You said, oh no, here, we've got one of the crazies preaching Jesus. Stop. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to tell you a story of some people just like you, Jews just like you. And they saw Jesus face to face. They saw him in flesh and blood and did not recognize what he was saying. And notice what he says here. What he is saying were the utterances of the prophets read every Sabbath. He was saying he is the word made flesh. The word we just read from the Old Testament. It was him. But notice what they did to the word they believed. They fulfilled it by condemning him. And, and while they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they went to Pilate. They prostituted their religion to Pilate to kill their Savior, who is Jesus. And they had him executed. And they carried out all that was written of him. You, you see, some of you are here today and you're saying, God, give me a sign and I'll follow Jesus. Give me a sign. God, be real. We don't even know what that means. Just make yourself real. Give me an experience. Do you understand the wickedness of your heart is that you could look Jesus in the eyes and reject him? Do you understand that's what the Jews in Jerusalem did? You don't need evidence. You need your heart changed. And your heart is changed when you bow before him as Savior King. But notice what Jesus does to the story. They fulfill the story in their rebellion and condemning him. Notice how that works. They fulfill it. They fulfill it by condemning him. And then verse 29, they carried out all that was written of him. That they were fulfilling the word of... Listen, this is so amazing and complex and fascinating that they killed him and they fulfilled the word they were rejecting and rejecting it. Do you get that? Do you, do you see how in the wisdom of God, he uses the rebellion of men to fulfill his promises. They are fulfilling the very word they are rejecting, standing before them in flesh and blood. And what Paul says here is the word was made flesh. Jesus became your stories. 
Jesus was the exodus in flesh and you killed him. Jesus was manna from heaven in flesh and you killed him. Jesus was a judge, a savior in flesh and you killed him. Jesus was your savior king and you killed him. But here's the good news. A crucified Christ is a Christ that saves. That's the good news of the gospel. That he even takes their rebellion and uses it to save his people. And that's the way God works. He uses the darkest chapter in his story for our good. Because in killing the Exodus, there was a Lamb of God whose blood was slain and shed for forgiveness of your sins. In in rejecting bread from heaven and killing him, we are provided with flesh and blood that we trust in and we feast upon forever. We were provided with this great warrior who spit in death's face. The worst chapter in God's story is used for his glory. You understand that? And it's the same thing with your life. Notice how the text ends. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, if you're a Jew in the synagogue, you go... Oh, that's bad. But if you're a Christian in Richmond in 2018, you go, oh, that's good. It's about to get really good. Because the worst chapter in the story is the only thing that makes our story worth reading. Because if we stop here, it's hopeless and there's only despair. But we know that tree is a cross where he crucified my sins. We know that tree is a cross where He died for me in my place so that I could live with Him forever. And when we read of that tomb, that dark hole in the ground full of despair where a corpse is laid, and we read of that, we go, oh, that's not the end of the story. And that gives us hope. Because we know our worst chapter was buried there. Chapters where we write him out of the story. They are dead and they are gone. And we read of this tree and we read of this tomb with hope. You see, here today, some of you are trying to be savior and save yourself. Some of you want to be king. But there's a day coming for you. Just like this tree and just like this tomb where you will lay on a hospital bed and nurses will come in and they will begin to pull cords out of your body. They will begin to take heart monitors off. They will take your body and zip it up in a body bag and carry it for somebody to put makeup on and all kinds of stuff so people can stand around and gawk at your corpse. If your savior and your king, that's the end of your story. But if Jesus is your Savior and your King, the end of your story is flesh and blood that begins to move again. A heart that begins to race. Lungs full of air. Synapses in your brain that begin to fire again. Eyelids that flicker. That that happens again for those who believe Jesus is their Savior and King. You see, you read the worst part of the story and yet the worst part of your story you can say has already happened for you. It's already happened. I've already been crucified with my king 
and I've already been raised from the dead with my King, who is also my Savior, Jesus. Let's pray.